Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of In Transition, the podcast that explores the practice of content marketing in the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and I'm delighted that you've decided to invest 30 minutes of your valuable time as we explore the practice of content marketing in the public sector. This week, we're joined by the co-founder and CEO of one of the world's leading public sector community engagement firms, Bang the Table. But before we get to our guest, it's definition time. Content marketing is a strategic business process that involves the creation, curation, and distribution of useful, relevant, and consistent content designed to meet the specific needs of an audience in order that you achieve a desired citizen or stakeholder action. Well, our guest this week is Matt Crozier. Matt co-founded Bang the Table way back in 2007 with Crispin Buttress. Prior to founding Bang the Table, Matt worked in senior positions in both the UK and New South Wales governments, dealing with transport, infrastructure, land use planning, and rural and regional development issues. He also ran his own successful consulting business, helping organisations to connect with government. Matt is also the former chair of Compass Housing Services, one of Australia's largest community housing providers. Matt joins me now, and thanks for being in transition. Thanks, David. Matt, take us back to the beginning of Bang the Table because you really were miles ahead of the curve in terms of developing a platform where government and public sector clients could engage with communities. Yeah, it was, and it's funny to be thought of as miles ahead of the curve. I think back then people thought we were a little bit mad. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, we'd worked, Crispin and I both, we met working in government and for our whole careers we, we'd spend our time you know, working on important policy issues, things that affected people's lives, and then trying to get them engaged, you know, in the process of bringing those uh, those ideas and policies to fruition. And, and we were constantly faced with that, that um, problem that public servants face of, of talking to the same three or four people all the time. And, you know, we would only ever be able to get in the room people who were so activated on the issue um, that they were sort of on the fringes of it, you know, the people who were dead against or, or really in favour of something. And, you know, both of us realised the, the absolute power of getting to the everybody else, the people who didn't have time to come to our meeting, the people who weren't all that interested in the issue but, you know, had a view when pushed. Um, those people bring an awful lot to the table. And so we thought, you know, working with those people online, giving them, lowering the barriers to participation would be, um, a really good way to get them involved and get better policy outcomes. And, and that's very much proved to be the case. So take us on that journey from 2007 and, and what the attitudes were like back then mm. as to what they are like today. Yeah, sure. Um, look, I, I don't know that attitudes have shifted. What I find when I work with our clients and I, I talk to other groups is that there's always been a commitment to involve the community. You know, that that. That, that has been something that, that, that exists right through government and we, we work a lot in the private sector as well. Um, sure, there are cynics out there, but generally people recognise the value of that and, you know, that's been increasing. I think 
I think where attitudes are changing is that, you know, people are are gradually realizing that these these changes of technology that are enabling us to to you know bring lots more people into the discussion aren't some sort of flighty fad and they're not something that's going to go away they're not something that's just for kids they're actually just part of life now um you know back when we started we used to you know talk to groups that used to talk about gov 2.0 and various things like that and that's disappearing you know it's not online and other what we're seeing now is that it's coming together. These are just tools, um, just like holding a public meeting is a tool or, or a, you know, doing a sort of planning charrette or whatever it might be. Uh, these are just tools, and people are very open to using them. And, of course, you know, you come at this from the content angle, and, you know, we're learning how critical that is in achieving good engagement. So looking at it from that sort of hardy perennial, that problem of getting to everybody else and, and getting beyond the noisy um, minority. What mm. are your best tips for people to be able to successfully achieve that in their community engagement? Sure. I, look, I think the very first thing is to talk to people about what they're interested in. Um, and, you know, that might sound a little bit facetious, but, you know, so often we deal with clients who try and frame things in a bureaucratic way, you know, um, we work with um, a lot of local government and some of them, you know, they have to engage the community about their management plans, for instance. Now, a local government management plan isn't particularly interesting to most people in the community, but within it, there are lots of interesting things. And, you know, the habit has often been to bury the controversial elements and just try and get through. And we, we work with our clients to help them bring out those controversial elements because those are the things people are interested in. Um, People are less interested in, you know, their overall strategic framework and far more interested in what's visceral, what's real in their own lives. Um, you know, the library's going to close or, you know, we're opening a new childcare centre. Those are the things that people relate to. Um, and it also translates back to the way you present that material to the community. Um, I, I often tell the story of a client who I will never name um, who put out a cultural plan using our platform and... Uh, the introduction was about 10 paragraphs of text with no, no photographs. Um, the only information they provided on the site was a PDF of the document, and it was like a 60-page document. And they ran a discussion forum, and the questions were comments on Chapter 1, comments on Chapter 2, comments on Chapter 3. And predictably, they only got one comment, and we actually had to moderate it out because it wasn't appropriate. Um, and that's because... Although the culture of that area was really interesting to a lot of the community, what they were doing was throwing up barriers to participating. They were saying, if you want to participate with us, you have to think of this in a very bureaucratic framework. You have to print off and read a long document and you have to comment on each chapter in turn. Um, whereas we often see now clients who, you know, those questions in the discussion forums have nothing to do with the structure of a document. They're a video of someone talking about the wonderful things that are going on. Um, people are running you know, a storytelling tool, inviting the community to send their own videos and photos in and, and driving really engaging content. And, and that word engaging is the critical thing. If you go to a website and it's full of text, it's not engaging. You want to get away. If you go to a website and it's full of photo and video content and there are feeds coming in from social media and there's activity, you, you're going to dwell there. You're not going to give it seven seconds. You're going to give it seven minutes. You're going to give it, you're going to give it some time and you're going to start contributing. Um, and that, that's, that's pretty much, you know, one of the key learnings we've had. 
Now, in terms of that, though, how would you or what advice would you have for people who are involved in this this content marketing process, being able to draw that citizen-centric insights and then to be able to translate that into into compelling content that will engage the audience. And I, I imagine most of the people listening to this uh, podcast are really, you know, they're believers. They, they agree and they understand that. But how do they crack that nut of the risk-averse senior executive who says, hang on, may, you know, I'm not comfortable with this? Yeah, I, look, there are a couple of ways. I mean, we, we talk to, you know, the risk management conversations one we have all the time. And I, I think it comes down somewhat to the tools you use. You know, the platform we have has has nine engagement tools built into it, and they all have a different risk profile. An open discussion forum, even though we moderate them, it's true, it allows views to appear. And there are still some people who think that people being able to publish their point of view and discuss is a bit scary. And there are some issues for which you maybe wouldn't want to do that. Um, but, you know, when you look at something like community storytelling, it drives really rich content. Um, it's not uh, one of those real-time discussion things. So you can you can check the content before you allow it onto your site. So it's a very low risk profile, but a very high uh, impact in terms of how engaging it is. Um, we've used storytelling. Um, the first time we ever used it was for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Um, we were running forums about, you know, the... the uh, the, the nature and structure of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and they were being well populated by people arguing a point of view. Um, but when we opened up and asked people for their stories, we got 298 stories from disabled people and their carers about their lives and what they were facing. Um, it was deeply emotional and moving content, um, and, you know, some of it very difficult to read, but it really opened up um, and allowed our clients to see what it was that sat behind those positions. Um, and we see storytelling used, you know, both in those those sort of very personal situations, also in the planning context, if you're changing a place that is special for people, asking them for their stories about the place. Um, we did one for the 80th birthday of the Sydney Harbour Bridge and got stories from octogenarians um, about their memories of the bridge, um, which were quite amazing. Um, and you know, also about what people have seen elsewhere that they'd like to see. So inviting people in can be can be very low risk because you can control how the content appears. Um, you can also, you know, answer people's questions online. Um, it can be very engaging, but again, very low risk. So it's all about that selection of tools, how you frame the issue and how you select the tools you're, you're prepared to use. Um, and I don't think there's ever a situation now where there's not some level of engagement that's appropriate within your risk profile. Yeah. And in terms of the skills that are required within public sector agencies to be able to activate a platform such as Bang the Table or to run a community engagement program, what sort of skill sets do the, the, the government agency or public sector agency people need to have to be able to do it successfully? Well, look, it does depend what you're using. If you're using Engagement HQ, which is our engagement platform, you don't need any technical skills. Um, what you need is the skills to bring together the right content and ask the community the right questions. So it's the classic citizen engagement type skills that you might find through something like IAP2 training. IAP2 is the International Association of Public Participation. Um, so there, you know, the, those those same set of skills that those people in your organisation who do citizen engagement have are exactly what you need. You shouldn't be thinking about 
engaging online as some sort of separate technical discipline because it's not. It's just reaching out and talking to people in a, you know, through a technological platform. Now, the content marketing process, as I say, is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process. And it does start with the setting of specific objectives around a particular, whether it's a, you know, a service area or a, a policy area or a program delivery. So setting objectives, how well do you think public sector organisations do in setting clear objectives for what it is that they're trying to achieve? I think they're getting better. And, you know, it, it's, it, it is a really difficult area. You know, we often find that people's expectations when they start engaging online are very different from the reality that they'll see. Um, we, we try and help with that. We, uh, our, um, our reporting measures activity on a site in three cohorts. And, and I think the three cohorts are really important and, and should be used regardless of what platform you're using because they're kind of critical. Um, aware is the, you know, the number of people you're reaching out to. Um, but then we have a, a second cohort, which is informed. Um, and these are the people who've come and taken a look at not just visited the site and got away, but actually have taken the time to have a look, read your documents, viewed your videos, looked around the site. And understanding that cohort and targeting them is really critical um, to uh, understanding and managing your, your content, your targets, and, and your public policy outcomes. Um, the third cohort we have is engaged, and they're the people who are giving you feedback. And the ratios between the three become where you should set your targets. If I can give you an example, if you're putting out a, a draft, you know, a lot of what people do is they, you know, we, we've worked out a draft of what we want to do, um, and we're going to put it out to the community. Um, success does not look like a very high engaged cohort. Success looks like a very high informed cohort. Um, I can sort of illustrate that with an example. We did some work on a, on a planning ordin ordinance with a, with, with a large local authority. Um, a week into the project, uh, they had an informed number of around 10,000 and they only had 10 comments. So 10 people had chosen to comment, but they could show and demonstrate that 10,000 people had taken the time to read the documents. Um, and, you know, in a lot of, um, a lot of uh, early engagement tools didn't have the proper metrics. You know, they were just using Google Analytics or something. And people weren't really understanding the dynamics. If you can show that 10,000 people have read your document, but only 10 have bothered to comment, you can't say that 9,990 people um, agree with you or support it. But you can say that 9,990 people informed themselves and were ambivalent enough that they haven't bothered to go any further. And that in itself, for if you're you know, forming policy, is a really important number. Now, of course, you know, most of our clients um, are on unlimited annual contracts with us. They do repeat engagements. Some of them do hundreds of projects a year. And they validate those numbers against their own experience. You know, they'll put out something that's deeply controversial and they'll get hundreds, if not thousands, of responses. Um, and then they'll put out something else and see that. And, and over time, you get to build a really strong picture um, of what's really happening out there in the community that you could never do. You know, if you're running a public meeting and nobody turns up, you don't know if they haven't turned up because the Master Chef finale is on or if they didn't know the meeting was on. Or you, You've really no sense of it, but you really can achieve that online, which is why it's such a, a valuable addition uh, to your, your components. So just to sort of summarise that a bit, you know, we recommend strongly that targets are set around aware, informed and engaged cohorts. Um, and 
you know, we we obviously try and help our clients to understand what realistic numbers might be relative to their population on that. Um, and we find that when people have done this a few times, I think they're getting very good at setting targets. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very valuable insight because, as you say, the, the signal that you're getting out of those, you know, awareness and uh, informed metrics is is valuable. You know, it may not be precisely related you know, to a to an action or to behaviour as such, but it, it has to be some sort of representative signal, doesn't it? I think so. And I think you've also got to recognise where this sits. You know, this isn't, yeah. you know, what, what we talk about with citizen engagement isn't direct democracy. It's, it's building a picture. So this should be put alongside your face-to-face engagement, the expert opinion. And in our community, that all of that package of stuff goes before our democratically elected decision makers to help them make better decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're not about kind of weighing opinions and, and demanding that people do, you know, whatever the most is in, in one place. This is about making sure everybody's had a chance to speak, to learn, and all their opinions have been, been given consideration. Now, another critical part of the content marketing process is really that audience understanding and uh, trying to get in beneath to understand the needs, the wants, the the viewpoints, the pain points. And obviously, design thinking or user-centered design is all the rage at the moment. What's your views about that particular process for helping to build a better understanding of the needs of the community? Look, I, I think that when... You know, particularly design thinking, when we take the time to use that process in just about anything, to be honest. I mean, we we try to use it in our business to work with our clients to improve our software and our services. Um, and I think it applies across the board. I, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's it's a really, really powerful process. Um, it's, it, it, I guess, you know, the one challenge is actually, you know, being able to take the time to do that sort of stuff properly. Um, and I think, you know, my organisation, like a lot out there, are are learning these skills, perfecting these skills. And I, you know, I think they're going to they're going to help a lot of organisations be a lot closer to the community in the future. Yeah, well, I think they have to almost be embedded into those public sector organisations um, mm. as a matter of practice, not just the consultants coming in and saying, hey, here it is. Here's lots of post-it notepads and a nice, you know, colour, <laughs> colourful walls. But I think we've got to build that capability in the public sector over time in order to deliver, you know, more precise, more accurate, more useful services to the community. Uh, look, I think that's right. And I think the online tools are out there to, to help with that process. You know, for instance, we have a brainstormer tool that, you know, works for part of that process. So the online tools can be part of the mix in building that empathy with the community, building that deep understanding. Um but, you know, they're, they're never the whole picture. And I, I think it's really important that when when we look at these sorts of processes that are going to, you know, improve the way we're engaging, um, that we, you know, we look at our face-to-face and online processes together and build a suite of things so that, you, you, you know, you have as much coverage as possible. And what we're finding is that people who are regularly using online tools to engage the community are actually getting more people along to their face-to-face events. So, you know, what we're doing is we're building community, we're getting people more involved. Um, and then, you know, just sort of helping with that process. So, you know, so that people can maybe talk to you and have a bit of a vent before the process. So um, we worked with a consultancy uh, called Straight Talk um, some time ago on uh, looking at the future of, um, of the, uh, the Waringa Oval where the Manly Sea Eagles play. 
Um, and they, they use one of our forums right at the beginning of a process to allow some of the anxiety and anger to vent out before they got people in the room to work with them. Um, and it was fascinating to see that, you know, we ran a, a number of online forums alongside the face-to-face -face process, how that really helped get people into the mindset of what's happening to dispel some fears. And we actually saw the temperature change as we went through the process. Um, and I, I really like it when online tools are used in that way as part of, uh, you know, an overall process of engagement, not as a, not standing out on their own. And I think that's the sort of thing we're going to see more and more of. Yeah. So, so how do you go around balancing those, the, the offline activity with the online activity? So you do have that sense of coherence and effectiveness across a, a whole program. Yeah, look. Um, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think it's about designing the program from, from the start with relation to objectives. You know, what are you trying to do here? Are you trying to inform a lot of people of decisions that have already been taken and then engage them about a certain aspect of a project? Um, are you trying to build community consensus? There are a whole series of questions. And I think then you select your tools based on what you're trying to achieve. Um, and I personally believe there should nearly always be an online component to what, what you're doing. But, you know, it would be strange not to because just as uh, not everybody wants to talk to you online, not everybody wants to talk to you offline either, and you wouldn't want to exclude either group. Um, I think bringing the processes together is, is the right approach and starting not from a, oh, you know, we're going to do a Facebook thing or, you know, something like that. We, we do hear a lot of people who, who start with the, the solution or, or the tool in mind instead of the process. I think it's much better to map out who you're trying to reach, what you're trying to achieve with them, and then have a think about which tools are going to be effective in delivering that, both online and offline. And, and that's how you build an integrated process. And you know, they work extremely well. I think you've really put your finger on something there and it's certainly something that we have in our experience is that people like to do things before they do the, the thinking piece, <laughs> you know, they, because it's so accessible and because you can start, you know, everyone gets excited and they go out like at a million miles an hour and then, you know, they run out of puff after a couple of weeks, not understanding that it does take time to build trust, you know, with an audience. Mm. How, how do you encourage people away from the, the doing and move them back along the, you know, the, the path to the thinking before they do the doing? Yeah, it's, it's hard in every field. And, you know, we, we try to help do that with our software, in fact. And, you know, we, we try to guide people and we send our clients case studies and we, you know, we do all sorts of things to try and get people really thinking about their objectives and deploying the right tools. I think um, that we're moving away from an era where, you know, a message came down from the minister's office saying, we want to do a Facebook thing, and that, that was how you selected the tool. You know, the, the, the time when people used a forum because the boss said use a forum is, is going away. Um, we do see too much of just throwing out a simple survey. Um, which you know often is a real loss of opportunity to to get people expressing themselves more broadly and understanding other views and things like that. Um, but I, I do feel quite optimistic about what's what's happening in terms of you know we're getting a lot of really informed tool choice. Um, we're getting people starting to think you know the the time when people wanted to be jumping on the latest online fad I think is is going past and and you know that that's good. There were there have been so many times where I would talk to people about, you know, who've decided to to 
to do something on Facebook, for instance, and I've asked them why, and there's been no answer other than we wanted to do Facebook. And and I, you know, that's the sort of thing that we're seeing less of, and I'm I'm very pleased about that because, um, you know, sometimes you know Facebook might be the right tool, but but you should be thinking what you're trying to achieve and then putting the tools next to it, and that's the important thing. And I think if you go looking for you know, there are, there are reasons to be consistent and using one platform on an ongoing basis because you get to build and coalesce a community around it. Um, and therefore, I think, you know, what you need to do is, is look for a platform that has a number of options built into it so that you're not always tied to using one thing. And in terms of, you know, your cadence of how often that you activate that platform to reach the audience, do you have any sort of generalised advice for people as to, how often they should be, you know, knocking on the door of their audience, so to speak, to seek some of their very scarce attention? Yeah, I think you should never stop. Um, I think that by consistently engaging on an ongoing basis, you you build, you, you suspend cynicism in the community. You know, if you go out and ask people about a, an issue you're dealing with, um, and those people come back to you with feedback and then you go back to the people and tell them what you heard and what you're going to do, um, then they can see, yep, it's worth my while coming back again. Um, if you were to go to the City of Sydney's website, which is at sydneyyoursay.com.au, um, you'll see on the homepage that they are engaging the community about all sorts of stuff, everything from climate change to something as small and local as we're refurbishing a small local park. Um, and the community get engaged at all sorts of levels. And the wonderful thing is, you know, most of us don't want to be engaged about absolutely everything. But something will come up during a year or two in your community where you do want to be engaged. And because you sign up to join in, you kind of get captured into that community. And if you then get a weekly or fortnightly email telling you about all the other opportunities to come and be engaged, we don't find that many people unsubscribe from those. They're happy to have those. They may not get engaged on all the opportunities, uh, but they're there in your community and they're hearing that you're interested in their views. So, you know, we, we kind of work with our clients um, and over the years we've changed our pricing model to reflect it. We want people to engage on everything, even the things without a budget, because sometimes they're the things the community are most interested in. Um, and and it works. And, you know, um, uh, we've, we've written blogs about the experience of various clients who've, you know, taken this really consistent approach to engagement and have seen their you know, their virtual community panel just, just go up exponentially as more and more people get involved and activated on different issues. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I think it's also, that's the gift of technology, isn't it? That you can actually uh, be connected to your community 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And this notion of the old days of campaigns where we would start and we would stop well, these days there's no really stop date because there is always something else to, to talk about. And I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah. Just so, in terms of, uh, just a final question, and I want to be respectful of your time, is just to make just choices around content types. Um, obviously we're seeing video become very popular. Uh, audio has a place. Uh, photos have a place. And there are all different types of platforms. Do you have any sort of, overarching advice as to how people can make choices and what threshold questions they need to ask themselves before saying, okay, it's going to be, it's going to be text or it's going to be video or it's going to be audio or, or you know, what content type it's going to be. Yeah, I, look, the best thing I can say is just mix it up. You know, different people like to absorb information in different ways, so provide all of them. There's no reason not to. 
Um, if you're having trouble, you know, for video, you don't need to spend, you know, 10 grand on a production company. Um, you turn on your iPhone and take a video and talk to the camera, you know, go and find the expert, point the camera at them and talk to them. And, and straight away, you've got really engaging content. You know, we've had a lot of clients working with Vox Pops of the community and those really personalized issues. Um, we, we saw some work about um, the very difficult issue of culling wild uh, the brumbies in the Snowy Mountain National Park. And the, the guys running the project, um, they actually they made every question a video and it personalized the issue and it took a lot of the sting out of it. It was people talking about their concerns and their opinions. And when you personalize issues like that, you, 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 know, you really reduce the heat. So um, my view is always mix it up. You know, we all love fo- video and audio and great photos and things, but there's, there's really no reason in this day and age to pick one over the other. You know, use them all. All right, Matt Crozier from Bang the Table. Thank you very much um, for those insights, those case study, that wisdom. How can you let our audience know perhaps how they might be able to learn a little bit more about you and a little bit more about Bang the Table? Sure. Um, David, if if the audience would like to go to bangthetable.com, um, they'll find it's a blog site. It's where we write about um, this sort of stuff, the, the practice of um, citizen engagement. Um, and from there, there are links through to our software as well. So I, I recommend a visit to bangthetable.com. You'll also find us on LinkedIn, on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, so uh, and at Bang the Table would be a good place to start looking. Fabulous. All right, mate. Thank you very much for your time today. A great conversation, a lot of enormous value for the audience. And uh, I'm very grateful for that, for, for you, for giving us uh, some of your time today. And to the audience, wherever you are, are in the world, um, I'm, I hope you enjoyed that because I thought really Matt knows how all this stuff works and really go to bang the table. There is so much information there, so many resources there. These guys have been at it for a long, long time. So if you're stepping into this path of using content marketing and you can hear from Matt that, you know, it is a way of being able to engage citizens on an ongoing basis and to use content to, you know, talk about your issues and really get those insights that you need to inform your policy or your service or your program. So great conversation. Thanks very much for joining us again this week and I'll be back next week. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in government. For more, visit us at intransitionpodcast.com.au.